To meditate on the joyful mysteries is to focus on the realism of the mystery of the incarnation, but also on the foreshadowing of the mystery of the saving passion. This occurs particularly in the final two mysteries that are not quite as joyful as the first three. Indeed, these are two of the seven sorrows of Mary, if you're familiar with that devotion. The prophecy of Simeon and the loss of the child Jesus in the temple. These mysteries already connect with the passion. For example, how many days was Jesus lost in the temple? Three days they were looking for him. And how many days was Christ gone in the tomb? Thus, the final two mysteries, while preserving this climate of joy, already point to the drama yet to come. The presentation in the temple not only expresses the joy of the child's consecration and the ecstasy of the age of Simeon, but also records the prophecy that Christ will be a sign of contradiction for Israel and that a sword will pierce his mother's heart. And so there are, again, many possible topics to reflect on in the fourth joyful mystery, which actually encompasses three different events that occur on the 40th day after Jesus' birth. The purification of Mary, the redemption of the firstborn child Jesus through an offering prescribed by the law, and the presentation of Jesus in the temple. Thus, in the older tradition, which is still kept in the liturgical calendar of the extraordinary form of the Mass, the Christmas season lasted 40 days until February 2nd, the celebration of a candle Mass, or the Feast of the Purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary, that feast that today we know as the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord. And for us today, you probably know, the Christmas season now ends with the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, the Sunday after Epiphany, which will be on January 13th this year. Well, next year. Not to confuse you, there is one event the fourth joyful mystery does not refer to, the eighth the day of the circumcision, which we could read in Luke's Gospel just before the passage I did read. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise a child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. So on the eighth day, Jesus formally receives his name, which as an aside is the only word we know for sure that St. Joseph spoke because we have no recorded words of Joseph in the Bible, but it would have been the father who gave his son the name. And in this case, it was the name Joseph had received from an angel in the dream. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means God saves. and already points to Jesus' mission. But on the eighth day, Jesus is circumcised. Now, becoming a member of the people of Israel, by following the law, sharing in all the promises made to Abraham thousands of years before. St. Paul would speak of this event in the letter to the Galatians, 
But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Christians have also seen in this moment of the circumcision a certain anticipation of Jesus' crucifixion, as it's the very first shedding of Christ's blood. And as we know, the value of Christ's blood is infinite. In other words, Jesus could have redeemed the whole world by the simple act of his circumcision. Yet he pressed on to a more perfect fulfillment and more complete self-gift. And so would fulfill the expectations of the old covenant on the cross. But that already beginning, if you will, in his circumcision. So as I said, that's not what the fourth joyful mystery is about. Rather, it's a chance to meditate on three other events, the first of which is the purification of Mary. In the book of Leviticus chapter 12, it's laid down that after giving birth, a woman is liturgically impure and is excluded from taking part in worship until she presents a purification sacrifice after 40 days. A lamb and a young pigeon, or in the case of someone who is poor, only two turtle doves or young pigeons. I don't know if that's where we get the song from or not. On the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two turtle doves. But it is noted here that Jesus' family was poor because they make the offering of two pigeons and not a lamb. Please note that this ritual purification doesn't mean that the law considered sex or childbirth to be dirty or sinful. The priests had to purify the vessels of the temple because it was an acknowledgement that they were sacred. And the rite of purification renewed that holiness so it can once again be used for God's purposes. So after 40 days, the woman's body was purified so that she can once again be reunited with her husband in this sacred act of marital communion. And of course, God can again use that act for his purposes of creating new life. The Torah just prescribed then that every woman who gave birth should 40 days afterward make a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem for this purification. But what strikes me most about this moment, this fulfillment of the law, is the fact that obviously Mary has absolutely no need to be purified. She's immaculate. She lives completely free of all sin. Indeed, Jesus' birth ushers in the purification of the world. So in this case, it seems to me a lot like Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, which is the mystery Bishop Conley will talk about tomorrow. Jesus had no sin and therefore no need to undergo a baptism of repentance. Yet he still does so to fulfill all righteousness because he comes to take on the sin of the world. 
And Mary still obeys the law as she shares in God's plan to fulfill the promises of old. Moreover, Mary recognized that the grace she had been given was a divine gift. It wasn't something she could ever have merited or done on her own. So in her humility and recognizing her unworthiness, she submits to the law of purification. The second event occurring in this mystery alongside the purification of Mary is the redemption of the firstborn son. Again, in fulfillment of the law, the law here we can find described in Exodus 13. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And so they had this ritual of redemption of the firstborn son to remember the great miracle the Lord wrought in rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. However, when we read Luke, there's actually no description of this redemption ritual being performed for Jesus. Rather, Luke seems to be describing what the Lord told Moses actually back at the beginning of Exodus 13. Consecrate to me every firstborn male, The firstborn of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Luke's description makes it seem that Jesus was completely dedicated to God, much the way Hannah did with Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1. As you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here near you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord granted my request. Now I, in turn, give him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be dedicated to the Lord. And thus, Hannah gave her son Samuel over to the dedication of the Lord. And so this is really a third event, Jesus' consecration. That this child is being handed over to God in the temple, given completely over to him. Indeed, the word we use that Jesus is presented or the presentation in the temple can also mean offering in the way that the sacrifices of the temple were offered. They were being presented before the Lord. It evokes a language of cultic worship and the priesthood. Thus, there is much symbolism to this moment when the child Jesus is presented in the temple. As Scott Hahn says, When Christ enters the temple for his presentation, he enters as the rightful high priest. 
and with the presentation, he is consecrated for that role. He arrives as the long-awaited priest. He is also the sacrifice. He indeed, as his life will show, is the true temple. And so maybe why Luke doesn't describe a sacrifice being offered for Jesus, because Jesus himself will be the sacrifice. All incredible aspects to contemplate as you pray this mystery of the rosary. For example, there is a profound analogy between the temple and the body. As Jesus would later proclaim, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The temple has been the place of encounter between God and his people. But now we are going to encounter God through the person of Jesus and through our redemption by the sacrifice of his body and indeed our reception of his body now present here for us to worship and receive. If you allow me to switch gears for a moment, this presentation and consecration of Jesus in the temple reminds me of how my own focus on the Mass, an aspect of that looking at the Mass, has changed over the years. When I was younger, for me, the high point of the Mass was the reception of Holy Communion, that very incredible moment of actually receiving our Lord's flesh and blood, being physically united with him. As I studied to become a priest and was ordained, my focus turned more to that moment of consecration, that moment when the priest repeats the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. At that moment, he truly acts in the person of Christ, saying, this is my body, this is my blood. And of course, this is another incredible moment as the Eucharist is transubstantiated to become Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. But over time, I've come to now also focus on a part of the Mass that maybe is more overlooked. The liturgy of the, the, liturgy of the Eucharist begins with the offertory, the preparation of the altar and the gifts. I say the offertory is overlooked because we may see it as very practical. We need to take up the collection. The altar has to be prepared. The priest should wash his hands. So let's sing a song while we take care of all these things so we can move on to those more important parts like the consecration and communion. Yet at this point in the Mass, as we prepare to make present the very offering of Christ on the cross, the church is calling for us to think about what am I offering? In the Revised Translation, the priest says, Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours will be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. And so when we come to Mass, each one of us is to be offering a sacrifice. A sacrifice that's going to be joined to the sacrifice of Christ. As St. Peter says, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what is it we are to be offering at Mass? You may know the traditional morning offering prayer, which says, 
I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day in union with the holy sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world. Of course, we can bring to the Mass our intentions and prayers, our good deeds and sacrifices, our thanks and praise, even our trials and burdens that we suffer. The offertory gifts, the bread and wine, along with the fruits of our labors and the collection, symbolize the offerings we all make, but ultimately they're to be a reminder of how we are called to offer our very selves, to make a fitting gift by being faithful and pure, by sacrificing ourselves in acts of love and service. Christ was presented in the temple and completely dedicated to his Father, to the point that he would offer his life to the Father, dying on the cross. We too have been consecrated. And with Christ made children of the Father at that moment of our baptism. And therefore we are called to offer our lives to the Father by living each day in Christ. To put it another way, in a Christmas context, Christ desires to be born again in my life and your life. And when he is born in us, it will always be so that he can live through those same things as he did the first time he was born. And so Christ comes in those moments of fear, poverty, exile, work, temptation, pain, betrayal. Jesus came to be there and experience all these things. And he overcomes them, not by taking them away, but transforming them. Our suffering is overcome when we unite it with Christ's suffering. And so if we don't bring anything to offer at Mass, why should we be surprised that we don't seem to receive anything in return? Where in life do you expect something for nothing? Christ leads us in making a sacrifice to the Father. And thus both priests and people turn towards the Lord and join ourselves to Christ's prayer and unite our offerings to Christ's sacrificial offering to the Father. The Eucharistic prayer ends with a response that's just a single word. And in proclaiming that great amen, you're affirming all that has been said and offered by the priest. To explain in the meaning of the word amen, I once heard a child compare it to an email saying, amen is like hitting send. It's not complete yet until you do that. We have to take the priest's prayers and Christ's sacrifice and make it our own by sending up this prayer and saying, amen, so be it, I agree. I'm taking part in this action. So perhaps 
sometimes when you meditate on this mystery of the rosary. We could also reflect on this. What is it I am bringing to offer to the Lord? What sacrifices am I making? What is it that I am presenting before the Lord? Do I realize how I have been consecrated to him? Am I prepared to offer my very self and truly join in the sacrifice of Calvary? Returning back now to our scene, this sacrifice of Jesus is foreshadowed in the prophecy of the man Simeon and the woman Anna, who are seen as representatives of faithful Israel. They are greeting the Lord's anointed in the temple. Notice three things that are said about Simeon. He is righteous, he is devout, and he's looking for the consolation of Israel. He's described as a just man, the same as St. Joseph, a man whose life is lived in and from the word of God, striving to do God's will. He's devout in being a man of prayer, spiritually oriented to the Lord, as well as being externally close by being in the temple. And he awaits the consolation of Israel. You may know the consoler is one of the titles of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. As a spiritual man, he's attuned to God's call and his presence. And so he gives this prophecy first in the form of a prayer, this canticle of Simeon, that's been part of the church's night prayer from the earliest times. In this prayer addressed to God, we find two statements about who this child is. Jesus is the light to enlighten the Gentiles, and he gives glory to your people, Israel. Both expressions come from the book of the prophet Isaiah and point to how Jesus' mission will be universal, bringing light of revelation to the Gentiles, bringing saving power and help as has been promised to God's holy people, Israel. Having given praise to God with the child in his arms, Simeon turns to Mary with a prophetic saying, a kind of prophecy of the passion. Jesus is to be a sign of contradiction set for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And to Mary, he says, a sword will pierce through your own soul. We, of course, see this prophecy fulfilled when the mother sees the body of her son pierced by a sword. Compassion, which literally means to suffer with, is a fundamental Christian attitude. We see in the sorrowful mother whose heart is pierced along with her son. But ultimately we see compassion also in Jesus, who shows us a God of love, a God who wants to suffer with us by taking on our sufferings in order to redeem it. There is no glory without the cross. Jesus will bring light to the world, but he will do so as the suffering servant who fulfills his mission in his passion. And so the cross will be that sign of contradiction 
the stumbling block, as Paul would call it. It is a sign that challenges each one of us to make a choice. In our self-seeking and pride, will we set God aside? Or will we free ourselves from a slavery to indulgence and self-absorption by joining Mary at the foot of the cross, knowing that it's only here that we are set free, knowing that this is the price of our liberation? Finally, there is Anna, an 84-year-old woman, a widow who worshiped with prayer and fasting in the temple night and day. Truly a model of devotion and adoration. When Jesus appears in the temple, she is there. Coming up at that very hour, she gave thanks to God and spoke with the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When Jesus appears, am I there? Am I coming to Mass? Am I coming to adoration? Am I coming to adore Jesus who waits for us in our churches? Like Anna, do I give thanks to God? And then do I tell others? Do I pass on that gift of hope that I have received? Is my life a proclamation that says, I live for God? The child grew and became strong. Filled with wisdom, the grace of God was upon him. Let us ask Mary for that same grace of God to come upon us, to fill us with wisdom, to give us strength when faced with the reality of the cross. And to help us unite our offerings with Jesus' offering. Unite our sacrifices with his sacrifice. Unite our lives with his life. To Jesus Christ be all glory and honor forever. Amen.